Hey everybody, this is Andrew from the Jazz June and Post Skeleton, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we are back with a brand new episode. And on tonight's show, Aaron Pendergast. Now, he's one of the directors of the upcoming documentary film, The Blasting Room, which documents the history of Bill Stevenson's studio of the same name. And Bill Stevenson is, of course, drummer of The Descendants. Now, in this interview, you'll hear about Aaron's history. You'll hear about his history in filmmaking. You'll hear about the Blasting Room documentary and the many great bands who have recorded there over the years. So that's coming up momentarily. Now, folks, you need to support the scene, the new scene, that is. Give us Apple Podcasts and Spotify reviews. Come on. We need them. We want them. We've got to have them. We're trying to get over 100. Open up your Apple Podcast app and give us five stars. Write a nice review if you feel like it, and I'll read it on the air. Also, give us Spotify reviews. I'm trying to get us over 100. We're getting closer, and you're getting us there. So thank you, everybody, who has submitted a review. Also, you can support us financially by purchasing the Life is Music is Life new scene long sleeve shirt. Head over to the store at Deathwish Inc. Search the new scene. The shirt will pop right up. Purchasing this shirt will help us with our operating costs. You know, we don't have a Patreon We don't charge for any extra content. I just put it up, and it's yours, free of charge. Also, folks, support our sponsor, Iodine Recordings. There's a lot of exciting things going on at Iodine. We have a new signing over at Iodine Recordings. And the new signing is... Her Heads on Fire, the newest Iodine Recordings band. Now, Her Heads on Fire features members of Saves the Day, Small Brown Bike, Garrison, and The Bomb. Welcome to the family, Her Heads on Fire. Now, I saw Her Heads on Fire live a couple months ago in Brooklyn, and I dug it. I really dug it. They've got a new LP up for pre-order. It's called College Rock and clove cigarettes, head on over to iodinerecords.com and pre-order the record. I hope this one song is on it. I've had it stuck in my head since the band played. It was the song they opened with at the gig. I don't know the name of it, but I will be listening to the LP, that's for sure. Also, some more iodine news. One Line Drawing has a new single up, This Is Water. Love it. Need it. Go check it out. You need to hear it. And there's more coming, folks. And I'm not just saying that. There's a lot of exciting things happening over at Iodine Recordings, and you're going to want to stick around for it. Trust me. Okay, so check back in with me in segment three to see how I'm doing. But right now, it's time for the interview. And folks, you'll hear Tommy on this one because we recorded it a few months back when he was still on the show. So let's do it right now. We're going to speak to Aaron Pendergast. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Aaron Pendergast. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. You know, you've got the upcoming Blasting Room documentary film that we're going to be talking about. But first, let me ask you, Aaron, how are you doing today? Uh, I am good today. I feel like my life is in a constant state of triage right now, but uh, I'm in a good lull. So it's, it's a good day today. Oh, that's great. So tell us about this constant state of triage. What's going on? (laughs) Um, So I have um, some, I have a day job on top of doing the the film stuff. And uh, my wife and I are um, in the process of selling our current uh, home and buying another one. And so all of that is just a whole lot to deal with. And then the movie trying to wrap up production is, yeah, it's just very busy all the time. So you're working a day job, selling a house, buying a house and making a film all at the same time? That is correct. I am impressed because I can barely even hold this podcast together and I rent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely, um, I feel like 
weirdly my like state of of normal is just a million fires all the time i don't know like when that happened in my life that i decided that's how i wanted to live it but it's it's been pretty consistent throughout my life that that's just what i do yeah i feel you on that that's what i've got going on now too so where do you live um i am in uh, thornton colorado so a suburb just north of denver did you grow up around there i grew up in fort collins actually near the studio so oh yeah where is that uh, so it's in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, kind of near CSU campus, if you're familiar with Fort Collins at all. Uh, we lived uh, probably about five miles from there. Um, and I, my parents are still in the same house I grew up in. So whenever I'm, it's kind of convenient, right? I can go up there, shoot at the studio, see the family. Like, it's a good spot. So you grew up in Colorado. Tell us about your hometown. Tell us about growing up there. Set the stage for us a bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's funny, like Fort Collins is very much a college town. You know, it's... um it's a big, I say town, it's, it's big, right? There's probably 150,000 people or something there. Uh, so it's one of the, the larger Northern cities in Colorado. And, um, again, with CSU being there and it being a, a big school, there's a lot of people in flux has like a college town vibe, but having grown up there, it's kind of one of those places you just want to get away from and not come back to. Right. So it, it's funny that there's so many people you know, especially the people at the studio, like really love the town. And there's a lot of reverence for it, for the people that come in to make records and things, because it's kind of like a nice change of pace from like a big, big city vibe. But I kind of have the opposite view just from it being my hometown of just like, uh, Fort Collins kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so you're growing up there. What was your thing growing up? Did you get into music? Did you want to play music? What was your thing? Yeah, that for me, it was um, initially uh, music right? I just loved, loved music, wanted to play, you know, wanted to perform, but never had the balls to do it. So never really got into um, bands or anything other than like, you know, the middle school, high school band playing saxophone or whatever. But I was loved music. I uh, got turned on to punk rock when I was in, you know, elementary school when Dookie came out. And uh, that was kind of my introduction to it and was pretty much hooked from there. Um, have always been a big fan of of punk rock and and music and um, you know just like not the mainstream cool things like I was into video games and stuff too so just very much the uh, you know the nerdy kid but um, it's always been something I've enjoyed. You're speaking my language now, Dookie. Uh, video games; these are all very good things. Now, <laughs> Dookie was kind of my entry point for. I never really got into a lot of punk rock stuff, but I was caught up in the alternative boom. And Green Day kind of became big around then. And Green Day were my favorite band for quite a few years. So Dookie was a very important album to me. Yeah, definitely. I feel like um, kind of in the same vein, right? Green Day was a very important band for me for a long time. And um, again, that being the intro and then a lot of that just pop punk um, mid to late 90s kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, that kind of natural evolution into, um, you know, the the like emo scene certainly has a lot of... Uh, similarities to punk rock so got into some of that too as i got older and yeah it's just kind of i i like a lot of different music but it always kind of comes back to that that core punk rock place absolutely and tell us about your trajectory a bit like me i came in from alternative for, with a spice of new metal and then straight into hardcore and metalcore and all this crazy stuff and then eventually to emo tell us about your trajectory and some of the bands that were important and influential to you Oh gosh, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, it, I, yeah. Um, so let's see. So there was the green day intro, like funnily enough, I, you know, rancid was also big at the time and I was never really into them. Cause like the like punk kids that were into that were like the really hardcore, like, you know, mohawks and studded jackets and all that. And I wasn't like quite that into the scene where I, I had to look the part too, you know? So I picked up on them like kind of later in life. So I'd say for me, gosh, I'm trying to like go back now and think about, where all this came from. So, I mean, there was like the green days and like the Sum 41, like 182, like that kind of, of stuff offspring, obviously. Um, and then as time went on uh, in the, like, you know, kind of the emo space, I landed on bands like Finch and, um, Oh gosh, why am I drawing a blank now on like every band I like? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. And of course all my stuff's packed, right? So I can't even look at my music collection. That's normally right next to me and say like, Oh yeah, those bands, it's all gone right now. Um, uh, yeah. So like Finch, um, uh, Alkaline Trio, that was definitely like a later pickup for me in high school. Uh, my neighbor introduced me to those guys and just immediately fell in love uh, from here to infirmary. Again, one of those just quintessential albums for me. The Ataris was another big one. They kind of, they're actually why I know about the Blasting Room 
was Look Forward to Failure was recorded in Fort Collins. And um, that was just one of my favorite as an adolescent, like just spoke to me kind of records, you know. And um, yeah, and then as time went on, like Gaslight Anthem and then getting into like Brian Fallon's solo stuff and Dan Andriano's solo stuff. Um, so like lately, I find myself more in like a singer songwriter kind of space, weirdly enough. Like it, it's kind of a strange evolution over time, but it's always like to me, like lyrics are really important. And all the music I listen to is just very strong lyricists. So did you get into the local scene where you go into shows around those around that time as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was great having like the Aggie and Fort Collins growing up was uh, our kind of local kind of small theater. But I mean, we had so many great bands that played in Fort Collins at the Aggie that you just, you know, as a kid, you don't think like they would play there. Right. So like, um, like Real Big Fish played the Aggie and um Oh, uh, there was a band called The Format that Nate Roos then went on to do the band Fun, you know, and they played in um, Fort Collins at the Aggie, like right before they became huge. Finch, I saw Finch there for like $7 and then their Letters to You was on the radio like the next week. So, I mean, it was just kind of like a, like Fort Collins just was kind of this place where a lot of bands came through and then suddenly everybody knew that band. It felt like right after that. Um, So, and then also just not having to drive to Denver for shows was kind of nice because we were teenagers and the parents didn't like us taking their cars to Denver. (laughs) So (laughs) it sounds very similar to our scene. We had this microcosm of a scene in the Philadelphia suburbs. So we would get all the bands to come through and we didn't have to drive to Philly and get in car accidents and get in trouble. Exactly. And I think too, like in retrospect, I wonder how much of it was like, oh, the blasting room's here. Let's check out Fort Collins while we're in Colorado. You know, and I don't know if that was actually part of it, but I could see that being a factor potentially. Let's talk about, now you've done directing and producing and working in film. How did you first get into it? So I, um, in high school, I had a buddy who worked for the like, you know, school TV channel thing that we had. Um, And he got me into editing uh, video content. And it was kind of one of those, I was like, oh, this is fun. And then I found out that you could actually do that as, you know, a profession. So I decided, oh, I want to, you know, I want to edit movies. And because I liked kind of, action movies and high, you know, high energy stuff at the time, I was like, yeah, I want to edit action movies, which is a really very much a teenager thing to think, right? Um, <laughs> and then um, from there, it just kind of like, you know, you realize how hard it is to get into the film business and everything else. And I kind of, I guess, like wandered around trying to figure out how to navigate this space, uh, particularly, you know, going to college and then graduating into the recession and not having a lot of jobs and everything. Um, so then I went back to film school in 2009 and that was the same year, uh, one of my good friends and, uh, kid I grew up with was injured in, um, Afghanistan and, uh, the Marine Corps, he was an EOD tech and that, uh, his injury and me telling people about his story prompted my first documentary short. And then that was kind of after that people liked it enough. I thought, oh, okay, I, I got a knack for this documentary thing. I'll, I'll work on that. And that had come from my previous time in college doing television production. We did mostly like TV news type stuff. So I was used to setting up and lighting interviews. So documentary just seemed kind of like a, oh, I know how to do that. Let's do that for this movie. And then, yeah, just kind of, that's just been what I've done ever since. How do you feel about that thing they do in documentaries where before the interview, they show them like getting mic'd up? What is that all about? You know, it's, it's weird, right? It's like this new trend in, in all the doc <laughs> content on Netflix and HBO and that where they have that like the person coming in and sitting down and like testing the mic or whatever, or, like taking a sip of water. And it's like, I don't, I don't quite get that. I think it's just like they're trying to do something a little different or trying to acknowledge that people know this is a setup and it's an interview, but it is kind of weird. Like, I don't know if it's my my thing. I'm not doing it in this movie. I can tell you that. All right. So folks, there will be no miking up and blasting them. <laughs> yeah. It's just straight interviews. No people settling. Like it's just going to be, they'll, <laughs> they'll already be seated and ready to go. Yeah. I, I get it. I guess they want to show maybe some more humanity or something. Like even with this show, I'll slip in like outtakes or mess ups or sometimes just because I think it's funny. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's aspects of that, right? Like when I, um, there's some directors I've worked with when I'm editing that uh, they they make things too sterile. They cut out every like pause and every um and ah and like those moments where people are thinking about things. And to me, it does right. It, it takes away some of that humanity and some of that um, the natural flow of things. Not to say I leave all of that in, right? Because you don't want people to sound stupid. But um, it it's nice to leave some of it in there. Yes, you know, I have I used to take it all out. 
but I've learned that you need it sometimes. So when I'm editing, I'll say, is, is this, um, important or is this, um, not important? Because some, you know, sometimes it's very important to leave an um or to leave space leading up to an answer because you want to hear the person thinking about it because what they're saying is going to be important. Exactly. And that kind of like building in those pauses and letting them be natural, right? I don't know. For Like there's something, I have a weird hang up with doing documentary work. And again, it might come from the, the background I had in television and kind of a news space where there's an authenticity I want to preserve. And I don't want to put in like fake pauses or unnatural pauses or, you know, like you, there's something to be said for like the art form and doing something to make the best movie you can make. But at the same time, I don't want to like, I don't know, you know, manipulate it so much that it's not like real anymore. Exactly. I would never want to manufacture a reaction or an answer to something. I I work with what I have and make it the best that it can be. Exactly. Yeah. I actually, I I was going to say my wife and I watched the documentary over the weekend, um, the Donut King, about that, the guy who's a Cambodian guy who came to the United States and started like 60 or 70 donut shops. But like the first and second act of the movie are about him moving to the United States and him starting all these shops. And towards the end of the second act, there's this really, really punctuated pause. And it's with the camera focused on him. And you're like, wait, well, something bad happens. What the fuck? Like, because it, they ask him a question about, you know, finances and doing this, all this stuff. And it, it's like a, a solid five to six seconds of him just kind of deeply exhaling and kind of like, you know, readjusting his posture. And I was like, oh shit, something goes wrong here. Like that was just a great part of the movie where I saw it. And I was like, whoever, you know, when you're, you know, sculpting things like this, do you really have to spend enormous amounts of time with the footage before you really start thinking about how is this going to be kind of pieced together in terms of a narrative? Or do you kind of like script out, not script out, but like, you know, the, you know, the talking head part of this is going to come up, then the B-roll of this is going to come up. Like, how does that work? So it's, it's really tricky, especially with docs, right? Because you never know what people are going to say or what you're going to uncover in the process of an interview. And with Blasting Room, that's definitely the case because there's not a lot of, at least there wasn't when we started the, the film, a lot of just information about the studio and its like history and what happened online, right? Like there might've been like if I, you know, tracked down interviews with Bill or, or Carl or those guys like and poured over those and dug through every audio interview they did, you might find that content, right? So for this, it's like you kind of go in with an outline and then follow that as best you can for the interviews. And then, yeah, it's just sitting down and like pouring over the footage over and over and over again and trying to figure out, okay, what works? How does this integrate? Like, where is this going to be most effective? And um, yeah, it's just like, I, and that to me is kind of the fun part, right? Is like figuring out where's the story and how does it all fit together? Yeah, that's interesting. Here's a question. When you're editing something that's not yours, like your early editing work, how does that work? Because when I'm editing my show, I know exactly what I want, what I don't want, how I want things to sound. It's inside of me. It's like an art form. I can feel it. I can do it. But when you're editing someone else's work, do you have extensive notes that you're working off of and specific things that you have to do? How, how does that work? Well, it depends on the content, right? So like the the couple narrative pieces I've done, you have a script and um, you usually have like a shot list and your uh, that script is... Uh, you have someone called a script supervisor that's basically like lining your script. So saying like, you know, shot 6A is this part of to this part of the script. So you've kind of got your bins and your shots, you know, listed out as this is shot, you know, 6A, take one, take two, take three, right? Um, so from there, you can just kind of build out the kind of the rough edit based on the script and the shot list and, and you know, where those things line up. With documentary, right? It's um, a little, there's a lot more interpretation there. So the, the, in those cases, I've worked off of kind of, like I said, what I do is, you know, we have an outline. And so it's a matter of saying, okay, this is the, this is the part of the content that fits with this part of the outline. So usually what I'll do is kind of go through and see, okay, where do we actually have coverage? Like what, what aspects of the story in the outline that we were hoping to capture have we actually captured? And if there's anything that we just don't have content for, we don't have enough content for, you can kind of cross it out and then kind of figure out, okay, here's the you know, the structure we have or the um, um, kind of how we can break that outline into, you know, here are, here's our three act structure from this outline and then just kind of piecing things together. And then, so usually what I'll do is work on 
large sections of the story and then sit down with the director and say, okay, you know, here's what I have. What do you have to add? Right. And then the director will come in and say, this is great. Or we need to talk more about this because it's really important later in the story, right? Because they understand the story a little better than I do as the editor. But I do kind of like that because you have that objectivity from someone who doesn't know the story as well, piecing it together, because they may pick up on something that like, you know, your director knows intrinsically about the subject that they might not realize the audience doesn't know because they're too close to the material, right? So I think having that uh, separation is a benefit to the project. And then, yeah, just kind of, um, but it is important to like sit down with the director frequently to go over edits and get feedback and work sections together to really make it uh, flow the way it should. Have you ever had to edit and there was like a overbearing director sitting next to you the whole time saying like, do this. No, don't do that. Put this back. Definitely. Yeah. Um, (laughs) There's, there's one piece in particular I can think of where we had someone who did not, uh, they, they worked, they were the director slash producer. They worked in, you know, um, kind of a television space and they were doing something that was far more effective as like an emotional narrative type piece and they just didn't get it. And they were buttonheads with me the whole way getting this thing done. <laughs> and uh, I honestly think it did not turn out as well as it could have because of that. They just, they were out of their element and did not want to listen to someone younger with less experience from their perspective on it when it was like, yeah, but this is, this isn't, we're not doing what you used to do. This is something different. So do you basically just have to do what they say? And even if it doesn't make sense for the project? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the the setting, right? And in, in that particular case, I was being paid to work on this project. So it was kind of like they were paying me. So whatever they say goes um, on a lot of the things I've worked on. It's been kind of a like a passion project that I'm working on and I'm not getting paid. And in those cases, I feel much more empowered to kind of push back and say, look, the only thing I'm getting out of this is that my name is on it. And if it turns out good, then that's good for me. And if it turns out bad, it's bad for me. So we need to... <laughs> Like I, this needs to not make me look like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, (laughs) That makes sense. So you did some uh, editing and you did this documentary film leading up to Blasting Room. Tell us about some of the road leading to Blasting Room. What other projects did you do before you got the idea for Blasting Room? So I started off with um, a movie called Coming Home, which was uh, the title ended up not working, but we were too far in to change it. Uh, my buddy, uh, Jesse Cottle was injured in Afghanistan. Uh, he was an EOD tech. And um, I made that doc and it was received very well. And, and a fellow student filmmaker that I knew, but guy who's more talented than than anyone should be allowed to be, um, called me up personally to say he, he really liked it and was wanted to work on something with me. So that made me say, okay, I did something right with this. I should stick to the doc thing. Um, but a lot of people were, because it was, you know, military focused thing. I had a, people coming out of the woodwork being like, oh, here, here's this other great military story and this thing and this thing. And I was like, I don't want to be the military doc guy, right? Like, I'm, like, especially being like a kind of a punk rock kid, like I'm not pro-military. I was pro my friend, <laughs> but certainly not pro-military. So I, um, I was like, I, that is the, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's not going to be the next thing I do. So I worked on another short film uh, that uh, my wife turned me on to um, about a, a dog that was the uh, world's first animal to receive four prosthetic limbs. And because Jesse had prosthetics, it was kind of a natural progression to something else that was like prosthetic driven, but in like an animal focused story. Um, and that's kind of been like everything I've done has been a, like a lot different from something else I've done, right? Like it's, there's not been consistency to the types of stories I've told. Uh, mostly because I don't want to get pigeonholed into a certain type of narrative, right? Um, so with that, the uh, I did a few short films, uh, got connected with a guy I worked in uh, reality television with for our first feature, which was called The Buffalo King. And he'd never done a documentary before. He Actually, I take that back. He shot one, but he only shot it. It didn't, like he gave it to an editor and that guy never did anything with it. So it just kind of, you know, died on the vine essentially. Um, so he got this opportunity to do this feature or it was, it wasn't supposed to be a doc, but he convinced them to turn it into a documentary thing and wanted to bring on somebody who done a documentary before. So that was kind of why we connected to work on that piece. So those first two features were really um, this uh, other filmmaker, Justin Kaler. He was the director producer. Uh, They were both South Dakota stories, kind of historical biopic type movies and a lot of fun to work on. But after doing those, I was like, you know, I think, 
I've done this enough that I can kind of do my own feature. So I wanted to kind of branch off and, and do something, um, try to do a feature without Justin, no offense to, to him at all, but it was just, you know, like I've done this. I want to see if I can do it on my own. Cause the, the short documentary work I'd mostly directed and, um, had been moderately successful. So f- with that, I took some, you know, took a page out of Justin's book and said, okay, let's like, he's a ranch kid. He's doing these Western stories based in South Dakota. He grew up in South Dakota. Like I need to find that niche for me. Right. And so the punk rock thing and then the blast room being in Fort Collins was just kind of like that perfect evolution of not only just my trajectory as a filmmaker, but also just kind of finding that perfect, you know, equilibrium of a scene I was in and a place that I'm from to um, be the first kind of feature film that I direct. Can I, I have a question about you, you did floating horses, right? Yes. Uh, so a lot of that stuff is older footage intercut with the, you know, the talking headshots, right? Right. When you found that footage, how did you go about like organizing it? Like, did you, because there's so much information, like how do you kind of whittle it down to, you know what, this is what we're going to use in this section. That is a really good question. It's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of hard work. What's what a lot of people don't realize too is, um, 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film are as good or better resolution than 4k footage. So incorporating it, if you get it transferred correctly, isn't like it actually incorporates very well, but yeah, deciding what to use is very difficult. And usually what we'll do is as the footage is coming in, we kind of like mark things as this is the best stuff. And then this is the like, this stuff's good. Right. And then this is the, it's not great, but if it's all we get, we'll use it for that. Right. And then for me, it's about finding like what visually speaks to what's happening in the narrative the best, right? So even if it's not the best footage, like what are they talking about? And does this visually um, represent that idea in a way that it fits the context of the scene? So if they're talking about an injury, you find a f- like, you know, footage of him falling off the horse, like during a rodeo, that kind of thing. Like you're like, all right, this may not be the best footage. However, it lends itself to what's being spoken about. Right. And and two, you want to go for like something more artistic, right? So if it's like, not that, you know, sometimes like literal is good too, but if it's like him talking about struggling with, you know, his addictions with alcohol or gambling, like him falling off a horse when talking about those things, right? Because it can be that idea of, you know, you're not, um, you're not performing at your best, right? Or you're struggling with something and how does that manifest in other areas of your life? Do you ever not have footage and you have to film some of that stock footage? Like, you know, like a bottle pouring into a glass or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And that's, we did some reenactments with floating horses and it's kind of, you know, you don't want to do that, but at the same time, if that's the best you can do in a situation, sometimes that's what you got to use or yeah, like the stock footage. Um, I try not to do that if we can pick it up. Right. Cause sometimes you can get like, like if we need, um, you know, the audio meters jumping or something on a, a mixer, we can go to the studio and get that. Or, um, I've got a, you know, I've, got a mixer here at home that I'm using to record right now that I can get those kind of levels jumping on. Right. And then that way you're, you're using stuff you shot. So you control like the, you know, the resolution and the framing and the lighting and keep that consistency. But, um, sometimes, yeah, there's just not any getting around it. And especially with like, if you want to, you know, if you're talking about like, Oh, the punk scene in the nineties, like if we don't have footage of that, we need to just find stock footage that'll work. Exactly. I, I like to use, I've shot little things here and there, music videos and stuff. And I like to use my footage because if I don't have footage, I will uh, borrow footage that I find online and uh, hope I don't get sued. You know? <laughs> I have done that in the past. Allegedly. Allegedly. Let me say that so no one comes yeah. for me. <laughs> right. Well, the nice thing with footage, too, right, is there's um, there's uh, for like fair use laws for copywritten material. So you can use it. And as long as you change the context of the original meaning of the content, you can get away without licensing it or paying anybody for it. You can't do that with music, but you can do that with a lot of like visual media. Um, the tricky part is you you do probably have to like pay a lawyer to write a fair use letter. So if somebody, you know, hits you up for a copyright infringement, you can respond with that fair use letter. And then usually they drop it because it's not worth fighting it at that point. Um, but you know, there's, it's not free to get a fair use letter drafted by a lawyer. So now you mentioned the inspiration for blasting room, you know, you're looking for your local story. And I love that because that's kind of how this podcast started. We loved our local scene. We loved the bands that were involved with it and we wanted to tell our story. So tell us about your story, Aaron, how did 
Blasting Rim come together? How did you get the idea? How did you get it started? So I've, um, it, it's, it's kind of a funny, so I basically, I started a different feature film and, um, it, it failed spectacularly, <laughs> which, you know, which happens. Like I, I certainly, um, when you're working on a, you know, I was doing something that was a little more of, I don't know how to, like, it was a story where you couldn't get the exclusive, right? Like if you're making a documentary about like, I don't know, um, a stock market crash or something, right? Like anybody could make that movie. Um, so, and this kind of plays into how the blast room started. So since that had kind of failed, right. I said, okay, I'm going to take one more stab at this feature thing. And then I'm going to just forget features and stick to short films. Cause the thing with a feature is it's, you know, it's expensive. It's time consuming. You need a lot more content. Um, it, a lot more can go wrong. Right. So that had kind of failed. And, um, I was trying to figure out, okay, the next thing I do, what I want to do, I'd mentioned earlier with, with the projects I'd worked on with Justin is find that kind of local scene thing, something that I'm, you know, I'm a member of, of that community, um, as well as something local, um, that I could tell. And then also kind of taking a page from this other, from my own book of this recent failure of look at, um, something you can get kind of more exclusivity on more control over. Right. So there's not a chance of somebody coming in with a six figure budget and telling the same story you were trying to tell with just the right amount of resources to do it faster. Um, cause he, you know, we were stumbling along with no money trying to figure out how to move this thing forward. Um, and it pretty much, like I said, kind of with, uh, Justin's, uh, first short doc, how it just kind of died because we had nowhere to go with it. So in this kind of like space of trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? How do I make all these things, this, you know, confluence happen to pull together a project? Um, my wife was on a, a work trip and so I was home alone, just kind of like in my own thoughts, you know, ordered a pizza, sat down, um, Dave Grohl's sound city was on, uh, Netflix or something. So I was like, Oh, watch that. I've, I've, you know, been wanting to see that. And it kind of like after, I think it was like, you know, two thirds of the way through the movie, and this is on the Kickstarter too, but like he just invites, you know, um, Paul McCartney and Tom Petty and all these people over to make a record. And I was like, ah, like I, I you completely lost me as a like average viewer when you brought in all these like super famous people to make a record on this, you know, mixer that you probably spent way too much money on from this guy <laughs> and put in your home studio. Cause of course you have enough money to do that shit. Um, so it kind of, I was like, I want to tell like, there's gotta be like a punk rock DIY version of this that would keep an audience connected. Um, so I mentioned that my wife was out of town because after watching the movie, I had the benefit of having no one in the house so I could pace around and talk to myself and not feel like an insane person um, for a little <laughs> bit. And um, and it was like just that light because I know the blast, you know, I've known the blasting room has been in Fort Collins since like 2001 or whatever. But it was like just that that light switch clicked in the back of my brain that, you know, told, was reminded me the blasting room's in Fort Collins and you're only, you know, an hour north of Fort Collins now in Denver. Um, that's your, that's your, you know, DIY punk rock sound city. That's, you know, the scene that you're from and the town that you're from, like, it's kind of all those things you've been hoping to find. Um, so then it was just a matter of doing research to make sure nobody done it already. <laughs> um, and then of course that turned me on to filmage and I was like, oh, well, do they talk about it in filmage? And thankfully it's like a side note, you know, they mention it, but only for like 40 seconds or something. And then they move on. Um, so the story hadn't been told yet. And, you know, it, it just seemed like the right, um, the right fit for everything I was, I was looking for to get that kind of first feature going. Oh, so you have the idea now. Tell us about how you get it started. <laughs> so I did a little bit of research, but going back to that partnering with, uh, who we're shooting with to get that exclusivity, right. I didn't want to do too much before talking to the studio. Cause I, I was hoping to kind of partner with Bill and Jason and those guys and really do something that, um, did the story justice and also kind of, you know, like working with them to kind of get that exclusivity, right. Make sure that if they were working with me, they were working with me. So I, I did some research, so I didn't go in completely, you know, blind to this thing and emailed those guys. And this probably would have been, oh gosh, like I want to say August of 2018, probably. I only remember because I got like a response from their email when we were at like a wedding in Estes Park. <laughs> and that's like the reason I remember the weekend. And it was kind of like, a, it wasn't a no, but it was kind of a like, eh, we'll think about it. But I don't know if we're interested in doing this, you know? So I, I gotten that like, and it, it took me a couple emails just to even get a response. Right. And then they said they get back to me and I hadn't heard anything. So like Chris, it was getting close to Christmas and I sent them another email and said, Hey, holidays are coming up. 
I'm not going to bug you again. Just think about it. Let me know in the new year what you think. And, you know, if you don't want to do it, no hard feelings. And then my, uh, my buddy Travis and I, uh, we're friends with the guys in Red City Radio and we'd done some video work for them. And they were asked, they had asked us to shoot this, um, winter ball and brunch thing they were doing. And so at that, um, the brunch part, the acoustic show at Ratio Brewing the next morning, uh, John Snodgrass and Ray Carlisle were playing like opening for them. And both of those guys were on my list of people to interview for the blasting room. Cause they're both, you know, big blasting room alumni and, uh, introduced myself to, to Ray and, and John and kind of told them what, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but if it does and you hear from me, at least you, you know, like who I am. And John was just super excited because he was supposed to be in filmage and didn't get a chance to. So he was like, Oh man, I, I like, I'm not going to miss this one. And I know those guys and let me see what I can do. Um, so he put me in touch with, uh, Kevin Kirchner, who's been kind of their videographer at the studio for years. I didn't even know he had been, but, um, like any of the stuff you see with rise against in the studio is probably shot by, by, uh, Kevin. And he's shot with most of the bands that have come to the studio over the years. So that was basically John put me in touch with Kevin. Kevin's, you know, friends with all those guys at the studio. He gets lunch and drinks and stuff with Bill all the time. Like they actually have, you know, a, a, a relationship beyond just a professional one. So uh, me getting in touch with Kevin was really that like kind of access point that we needed to to make the project happen. That's excellent. And that's excellent that you had the foresight to say to the folks at this uh, acoustic event, hey, I may be doing this thing. Let's talk. Yeah, exactly. Well, not, you know, it's weird, right? Because like with, you never know with bands, like are they, how often do they get asked to do like interview type stuff, press type stuff? Do they wonder is this legitimate or not, you know? And that was the other reason we wanted to partner with the studio was we kind of had them, if we were working with them directly, right? If they had a question, they could contact the studio to verify like this was a real thing, right? And so that's also why I prefaced it with, I don't know if it's going anywhere, but in case it does, this is who I am if if I reach out. So um, yeah, I think it like, I'm very glad I did. Cause I had had a second of like, ah, should I bug him about this? Or I don't know, like we're, you know, and yeah, just, I, I mean, it, I'm very glad that it came together the way it did. Cause who knows this may have been happening and I may not have been involved had I not talked to those guys. So, so you meet Kevin, Kevin knows everybody. How do we get to the point where we're actually filming this thing? It was a lot of him just kind of like whispering and Bill's ear, uh, as well as kind of talking to the guys at the studio who all kind of agreed that they should do something, but Bill doesn't really like to like celebrate himself. Like even the, the blasting room 25th anniversary show, which was kind of the thing that we used as the, the jumping off point for the movie of saying like, look, there's this 25th anniversary this year, the show's coming up. This is the time to do this movie. Um, even getting him to do the show, uh, talking to the guys at the studio, they were like, it was like pulling teeth. He did not want to do it. Um, <laughs> Cause he's just not somebody who celebrates himself. And I totally get that. Cause I'm the same way, right? I got it. I'm not, I don't tell people about my birthday. I don't try to make a thing out of, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm just not that kind of person. So, um, it was a lot of just, you know, again, like Kevin drop, dropping hints and the guys at the studio saying like, Hey, we should really do this. This, you know, it like, it makes sense. We should really try to capture this in the moment. And then also too, just kind of an interesting take. Cause a lot of the times these studio documentaries are, after the studio's gone, right? It's closed and it's whatever changed, you know, we went from tape to digital and this studio couldn't survive, whatever the context is. So doing one about a studio that's still like active and making records and, you know, a successful business, it's kind of a, a different take on the whole, you know, recording studio documentary genre. Um, so yeah, I think it was just that kind of everybody kind of nudging Bill in the right direction. And then, you know, proving that we were going to handle it well, right? Because that's the other thing, you don't know how, they don't know me from anybody else. So how are they uh, going to know I'm going to come in and treat it with respect and not just go in like looking to, you know, set the place on fire and make them look bad. Um, so I think that it also helped like, you know, me and Kevin connecting and having somebody attached that they were comfortable with. And, but I'll say from that first email I sent to us actually like getting the okay and shooting the first bit of footage was probably a full year. Oh, Wow. So a lot of legwork to get to actually filming. Yeah, definitely. Did you have to meet Bill at some point to get the okay? So I did. And that it was kind of funny because I thought we already had the okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'd met um, Jason and Jonathan and I think Chris. I don't think Andrew was there that day. Maybe it's Andrew, not Chris. I don't know. Anyway, we met like three of the people at the studio and um, kind of talked to him about the idea and everything. And then Kevin called me up one day and it's like, hey, good news. Bill's on board. 
we're uh, going to Odell Brewing to make the 25th anniversary beer uh, for the show. Every the, all the staff's going to be there. Like we should go and get some B roll of all that. So we went to do that, and we show up, and they're like, "Oh, here's like put your name on this, and you know, stick it on your shirt." And it was like this Odell sticker, and they're like, "Yeah, since you're guest brewers, like you just like make sure that they can see the sticker, and you drink for free." So you know, we were shooting and drinking and doing our thing all morning. And then, you know, the bill and everybody else shows up and they do their thing. And then we sit down for lunch and Kevin or somebody was like, okay, so like give Bill the rub, like pitch him the movie. And I was like, I have been drinking since 10 AM. <laughs> I can't pitch this movie to Bill right now. Um, so it was kind of, I think it was like, they were like, he was willing to hear me out at that point, but I was under the impression he was already on board with it. So we kind of had to, I kind of had to just like completely unprepared pitch this idea to him at that point. And, uh, thankfully he was on board with it, but it just really, yeah, it was, it was very much off guard, but I think I, I handled it well improving in the moment. Uh, I mean, obviously since we're making the movie now, but way to come through after having been drunk all day. Yeah, no, I really, I just, again, it was like, I thought we were already good. So I was just, you know, enjoying the shoot and having fun and hanging out. And then sure enough. <laughs> okay. So folks, if you don't know, the Blasting Room, it's a documentary film about the legendary recording studio, which was started by members of the Descendants and all in the 90s. They used an advance. They used an advance they got from their record label to secure a location for a studio and practice space. And there's interviews with a lot of great bands in this movie. We've got Descendants. We've got All. We've got Rise Against. We've got Alkaline Trio. We've got Hot Water Music. And... Iodine Recordings own Audio Karate. Tons of bands, even beyond what I just mentioned there. How does it all work? Do you have to schedule all the interviews? Are you speaking to people? Are you setting the locations? Uh, set the stage for us a bit. So it, it's a little bit of, um, it's kind of a joint effort. So the nice, again, the nice thing with Kevin being involved is since he's been around the studio and working with a lot of these bands for years, like he's friends with all the guys in Rise Against and that. So if he has a, if Kevin has a connection with the band, um, he works on, scheduling everything, working with them, setting stuff up. Uh, for the other bands, we worked with uh, Bill to kind of make the connection between myself and the members of the bands. That's kind of the other reason, right? To partner with the studio instead of going through like tour managers or, you know, PR people or whatever for these bands, we can talk to the artists directly and schedule with them, which is a lot more convenient because a lot of these bands are like, hell yeah, we want to do that. But, you know, their manager or their tour manager or somebody is going to be like a blockade from that happening, which is their job, right? Like they're supposed to kind of weed out the the bullshit, you know, and get them like the real gigs. But, it, you know, it's nice having that bill connection. So again, yeah, depending on what artist it is, I'll work on it or Kevin will work on it. And then we try to, you know, like make our dollar go further. So like before we did our Kickstarter at the end of um, 2021, in early 2021, we flew out to California because we were able to kind of coordinate it so we could get I think it was like seven or eight interviews done in one weekend because everybody was kind of in that area. So it's just a lot of like, you know, kind of working around what you can and then also trying to accommodate schedules as best you can. I know this from um, previous experience that trying to interview a band when they're on tour is a horrible idea and I still do it all the time and I don't know why, but. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about a bad experience you had doing that. Now you don't have to use a band name or anything like that, but did you, did you interview someone and they just weren't ready or it wasn't working? I mean, it's, it's a million different things that can go wrong. So like one time they, uh, the band's flight was delayed or they, the bags took forever to show up or something. So we were supposed to have an hour before the show and they showed up 15 minutes before, um, or an hour before sound check and they showed up 15 minutes before sound check. So we just had no time to actually do the interview, which again, like nobody's fault, right? That stuff happens. Um, right. Or, you know, it's, uh, so it's like timing on that or, oh yeah, you can interview them at the venue and you get there and they have music playing like super loud and you ask them to turn it off and they turn it off. And then like a, the, you know, the bartender for the night comes in and is like, why isn't the music on and turns it on at like halfway through a response to a question. And so it's just like, it's, it's so hard to coordinate and there's so many moving parts and there's so many things that like the band's trying to do that day to play that making it work is just very difficult to do. Yeah, I feel that. I had this great idea. I went to Furnace Fest and I was like, oh, I'm going to get all these little snippets with bands. And th there was nowhere quiet. 
literally everywhere you were standing, there was loud music playing. Even if you were standing far away from the stages, there was no backstage area that I imagined where it would be quiet. There was just, there was just nowhere good to actually pull this off. Yeah. And that's always, I mean, with, you know, with film stuff, like as much as the picture matters, audio is almost more important than what you see visually. Um, you can have, I mean, they've done like test groups with audiences where they'll do like a, a great sound mix and people will come out and say the movie was great. And then they do like a not good sound mix and the audience will say like everything about it is bad, right? It's not just the audio. It's like, <laughs> oh, the camera work was shitty and the acting was poor and like, and it was just the audio that was different, but like, that's how important it is. Right. So yeah, if you can't control the the sound in a space, it's almost not worth shooting the the content. So where do we stand with the documentary as of today? As of today, we are, oh gosh. So we we're into post-production. We have most of the production done. Uh, we are trying to do um, one day in March. We're getting everybody that's left to interview, just kind of planning like a weekend and just getting it all done that weekend. So we can wrap the shooting and move into post-production pretty much entirely. Uh, There's a few things we're going to pick up at the studio. If like a band is, you know, recording that we didn't realize was going to be recording, we'll probably go pick up more B-roll. There's a few interviews we're holding off on until we're farther along in the edit to make sure if there's any gaps, we can kind of fill those in. So that's with a couple of the the studio staff members. We're going to kind of hit them closer to the end and then do like a follow-up interview with Bill since we interviewed him in 2020, I think. It's been a couple years and there's been some changes at the studio since we interviewed him the first time. So kind of getting that like updated, you know, what's happening now perspective will be good. Uh, but we are shooting for having the movie completed by September or October of this year. Excellent. And how is it scheduling with bands? I assume you want to do all of these interviews in person so that you have a controlled environment and so that everything looks and sounds good. Do you have people flying to the studio? Do you have to go meet them or both? It's a mix of both. So if, if bands are in town, like when we got Rise Against, they were here recording uh, Nowhere Generation. So we were able to just get them while they were in town. Uh, we've traveled out to people. Um, we haven't flown anyone here, mostly because I feel like it's a lot to ask someone, right? To like pack a bag, get on a plane. Like even if we cover all the costs, right? They're flying out here to sit in front of a camera for an hour with us. Like that seems like a lot, you know? Um, so we try to go to people as much as we can. Also because, you know, the the space you interview someone in can really speak to or add to their character. Like Chris Sherry's interviews in his living room and you can see all his art behind him and he has like a, a Milo pillow on his throw pillow on his couch and stuff. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's that kind of vibe. Like we couldn't plan that on our, like we couldn't set dress that ourselves, right? Um, so getting people in their space, I think adds a lot to... Um, just visually and and also kind of speaks to who they are when you see them in their kind of natural setting. But it also helps like cut down cost if they're already here, you know? So like when Rise was here making the record, much easier to get them. Or like um, with a band like Audio Karate, those guys kind of live all over, right? They're not in the same place anymore. So if you can kind of get them in one place at the same time, it's easier to get those interviews done. Um, So it's a mix of things. So how do you cover the cost and the time? I guess you got to find time in your personal schedule and... And what do you have to fly or drive out to people if they can't make it in? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, um, like the, the good news with, uh, John and Kevin, my, um, you know, fellow filmmakers involved in this, uh, they both kind of freelance full time for video production. So their schedules are a little bit like, I would say easier to work with, right. It can be tricky. Like if they have a paid gig, it kind of screws things up a little bit, but for the most part, if we plan ahead of time, they can, they can show up. And, uh, and then, yeah, you, basically it's me and Kevin have been paying for all the costs out of pocket until we had this, uh, crowdfunding campaign. Uh, otherwise, yeah, we're, we're just kind of planning budgeting and then paying for what we need to pay for to make it happen. So you have a crowdfunding campaign via Kickstarter. Yes. Yes. And I saw that the project has funded, but can people still contribute? Um, they cannot. So if you funded, you'd have access to our backer kit where you can add on additional perks and things. Um, but now that it's closed, there's not really any way. We are looking at maybe um, backer kit does allow kind of like a, a shop site type thing where people could go in and, and order some of the stuff that was available in the Kickstarter. So shirts and pins and that sort of thing that we've considered setting up, but we haven't really gotten into it yet. It's, I mean, it, again, it's, a lot of work that I probably shouldn't be trying to do all by myself, but I'm mostly doing by myself. If you want it done right, you got to do it yourself, right? Right. Well, and I'm sure like Kevin would help, but it's one of those like, 
it's those weird. And I, I have another friend, Zach, that's a, a associate producer on this that um, he's offered to do a lot of the work, but it's like, by the time I type up and send him the info that I need, I could have just typed it into the thing I needed it in in the first place. So it's, it's hard to like pass things off when you're like, well, it's not saving me any time to actually do that. So, so we're shooting for a September premiere for the movie. What are we envisioning here? Are we going to do a an opening in a local theater? Are we going to have a red carpet and all the members of the bands come out? So we are um that's it's it's kind of tricky with independent film. So the reason for that targeted uh completion date is the South by Southwest deadline. Um so we're trying to ma- make their submission timeline. If we get into South by, we cannot screen the movie before South by Southwest. So, um, now with that, what we can do is like cast and crew screenings. So the plan right now is, um, and some of the backers on the Kickstarter, if you backed at a certain tier, you, you were granted access to the, the, um, cast and crew screening. So we are going to do like a big event thing around that with, uh, members of the band, people who worked on the movie, that sort of thing, but it won't be like open to the public as kind of like the, here's the movie, please don't hate it right <laughs> um and that kind of thing you're allowed to do because it it's not a public exhibition type thing but for a lot of festivals especially the big festivals like south by they kind of want like either a world premiere status or at the very least like a north america premiere status um so you can't have screened it anyway to the public prior to that uh festival once you've hit that it doesn't matter anymore and you can show it anywhere as much as you want so we'll probably do like once we kind of land a a good like big festival premiere we'll do a bunch of uh local showings in fort collins and some smaller theaters and try to do like a like an independent theater run around the the u.s if not broader that's got to be exciting. I mean, this project is coming together. There's the potential to shop it at some fests. We're going to be doing premieres. It's got to be exciting, right? It's got to feel good after all these years and all this work you've put in. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've really like, if if you get into a good festival, they are a really fun experience as a filmmaker, right? Because it's kind of that like moment you get to celebrate all the work you've done. Because we don't get, I mean, I don't make money making these movies at all like it's mostly a passion i shouldn't say i've made some but it's it's very like for the amount of hours put in right it's like a dollar 50 an hour or something it's not it's not good roi um but it is a lot of fun to do and the festivals kind of that's like your moment to kind of relax and celebrate what you've done and you know talk to other filmmakers and and hear some feedback and um yeah they're just the the experiences i've had with festivals have always been a great time so I'm excited to uh, to get it done. And, and also, I mean, we started working, like I said, my first email about this was probably 2018. So it's four years later. <laughs> I am ready to be done with it. <laughs> you know, I think it's great that you're doing this. These are the stories I want to hear. You mentioned that Dave Grohl, Sound City movie, and, you know, Dave Grohl, Paul McCartney, all those guys. That's cool, I guess. You know, I'll, I'll still listen to some music documentary stuff, even if I'm not crazy about the bands or something I don't listen to regularly, but the bands and the the environment you're working in, Aaron, those are the stories I want to hear. You know, these are my bands. These are my stories. This is the stuff I'm interested in. And it's not incredibly documented. There's not a ton of stuff out there. So, you know, we had Dan Ozzy on recently who wrote Sellout. Those are a lot of stories that hadn't been documented previously, and I was excited to read about. And what you're doing now with the blasting room studio and all the bands you've spoken to, this is, this is my stuff. This is what I want to hear about. Yeah. And I think that's important, right? Like there's so many, there's so much, I guess, like attention given to, and, you know, uh, I don't know, like credit put on like the big superstar bands and, and artists that, you know, have millions and millions of followers. And, and it's almost like these smaller bands, you know, as far as like the, the culture's concerned don't matter. And to me, I feel like they, they're almost more important, right? Cause I feel like the, though the fans of these kinds of bands like care more about the music, right? So many of these other people, it's like, they love the idea of these superstars, but they're not actually like there for the music or the message or the idea behind what they're doing. Like, I don't think they're as passionate, right? And so, and, and I mean, that's like, I'm not saying all those fans, right? But there's probably a much higher like ratio of fans that really care about the band and the music and what they're trying to say for these smaller bands. Right. Because they're really, I I don't know. Like, I feel like 
like that's what keeps them around, right? I mean, you look at like a band like the Alkaline Trio and they've never had like huge mainstream success, but they have such a like loyal fan base that every time I've gone to their shows, it's packed every single time. doesn't matter where it is. So, you know, obviously they have people who really, really care about their music, but their stories, you know, aren't told as much. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see a documentary about the Alkaline Trio. They've been around forever. I don't know a ton about them. Yeah. No. And they're, I mean, great band and super talented guys. And yeah, I just, I think, you know, and again, they're like one of the bigger bands of all the bands we have in this movie, but uh, they're also not like a huge band by any means, but they're still one of the bigger ones. So uh, in this, in this particular flick. So to me, it's just, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times they're like dismissed or ignored. And I mean, I've told the story a few times, but you know, I had a coworker who was kind of giving me shit for going to a less than Jake show in 2017. And I was like, yeah, they're still making music and they're still a cool band. Like, why do I care if I went? Like, <laughs> Yeah, we had this. I'm glad you say that we had this exact conversation recently. And I don't like when this music is dismissed as, oh, I used to listen to that or, oh, you still listen to that. It's like, look, I don't listen to every band I listened to when I was 17, but a lot of it is really important. So back up and shut up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's if that's the thing that, you know, if you like that band or if they speak to you or if they're still like making music that you like, like then who cares? You know, like, that's that's your thing. That's what works for you. Then, you know, listen to that and, you know, fuck anybody who's not okay with that or thinks it's weird that you still like that band, you know? And, and that was, that really... I think was a big driver for me is I, I was, I was kind of then at that point out to prove like, no, these bands do matter and they do make a difference in people's lives. And that was something when I, I interviewed um, John Christensen from Real Big Fish and um, he had said like for him as a musician, some of the most like, you know, best experiences for him is when they're meeting fans and fans are telling them like, Hey, your song changed my life. Or like I was in a bad place mentally and your music like helped me get through that. And, you know, a lot of people are really dismissive when you say like, oh, that song changed my life. Like, I do think people throw that around more often than they should. But I mean, there's definitely, I think, a lot to be said for some of these bands are making music that do have a profound impact on people's lives, that do create positive change in someone who's struggling with something. And that's important, right? I mean, even if it's one person, that matters. Absolutely. And that's got to be the best thing, you know, to hear that this piece of art that you created helped somebody through a tough time we've had bands on and they've heard those stories and it, i mean it's just got to be the best thing in the world yeah definitely and I, and I think yeah it's that's the thing that i i think where that's getting missed right or that's not being realized by a lot of people that this music is you know it's important and it's a positive impact on a lot of people's lives and um it's maybe not given the credit or attention it's due so hopefully we can do that with this film yeah. I mean, this is the music that speaks to me. Now, the Beatles, I've I've railed on the Beatles a lot on this show. And look, all due respect to the Beatles, I guess, but it's not for me. It's not the music I grew up with. It's not the music that spoke to me. And I'm tired of uh, being treated like a second-class citizen because I don't acknowledge their quote-unquote greatness. Your thoughts, Aaron? Yeah, honestly, this is... um. I'm glad you mentioned this and I'll, I'll take it into the video game realm since we mentioned that earlier. All right. You're um, really speaking my language now, please. <laughs> yes. continue. So I have the same, I have the same kind of uh, like, like what you were saying with, um, with video games, particularly uh, the halo video games. I've <laughs> never liked those. Right. <laughs> but I yeah. know that they are considered some of the best games, you know, at least the original was like, like redefined first person shooters or whatever. And I'm like, I, it's never been my thing. I don't like it. But I recognize that it has a place and a space within the the realm of video games because it's important to a lot of people, even if I don't get it, right? <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, I think it's important, right, to, to acknowledge that there's there are things that are given reverence that maybe are not for you, but that doesn't mean they're not relevant. That is a excellent way to put it. You know, I have played several of the Halo games. I like them, but they were not uh, life-affirming games for me. Exactly. And I know a lot of people who are very much like, like too far into the punk rock mentality of like, oh, well, that's popular. So it sucks. And it's not good. And it's like, no, it's, it's fine if you don't like it. But don't just act like it sucks just because people like it. Come on. You know, exactly. So life affirming game for you, Aaron. Let's hear it. Oh, God. <laughs> um, Recently, I'd say like the most of, of recent years, the the most impressed I've been with the game was Ghost of Tsushima. 
on uh, the PS4. Yes. I still want to play that. I have not played it yet, but it looks excellent. It's so, I had a friend who recommended it and I was like, eh, I've got a backlog. I don't know if I want to, you know, add to it, whatever. And then I finally picked it up and I was like, oh, holy shit. I'm glad I picked this up because it is an amazing game. I'm going to get to it eventually. Yeah. If you do play it in um, uh, Japanese with Engl- English subtitles, like I really think that makes the experience better. Good suggestion. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I do that with movies too. I want to hear the language of the people with English subtitles because then you don't lose the emotion and the nuance. Exactly. Yeah. It's weird when it's just dubbed. And I, I have to admit, like, I don't normally do that. But for that game, I was like, I want to try to experience this as authentically as possible. And yeah, it's it's a really, that's the way to do it. So tell us how we can support you with the lead up to the Blasting Room documentary premiere. Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, the, the Kickstarter's done, so we've got the 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 money now for kind of the last few things we need to do, licensing music and all that. Um, so it's really just going to be you know me trying to keep my sanity and get this thing put together in a timely manner on top of everything else going on. Okay, is there social media or something we can follow? Yes, uh, so we're on Instagram, uh, just Blasting Room Film on Instagram, and then uh, we have a website as well, BlastingRoomFilm.com. Um, the movie is, this gets a little mixed up. The movie is just titled the blasting room, um, but we had to specify film because the blasting room.com is the, the studio's website. So has to be a little bit different. Um, so we have a website, we have an Instagram, you can follow us there. Um, updates are sparse, but I'm trying to get better. I say that every time I do a podcast and I still have not gotten better, but maybe this will be the one we're going to push you over the edge. I, I hope so. Um, it's just, I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing, um, as an independent filmmaker, right? Like it's me, Kevin and John doing this. John is our cinematographer. So he's kind of really only involved when we're shooting. So it's just Kevin and I, Kevin's a freelancer. So he's got to take gigs where he can get them. And then I'm just kind of like every free moment I can find in my life, I'm working on this. So it's, it's, you know, we're we're all spread pretty thin trying to get this thing done, but we're all very, you know, invested and passionate in the project. So it's just, um, yeah, trying to get theirs is always a, a challenge. Well, Aaron, we're looking forward to the movie and we wish you all the best of luck with it. And we want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun. There you have it, folks. Aaron Pendergast. That was an excellent conversation. It was great to hear Aaron's story. It's great to hear about the progress of The Blasting Room. I'm looking really forward to that coming out. And it's always nice to talk to somebody outside of music, you know, hearing about the filmmaking process, hearing about everything that led up to Aaron making this documentary, the steps he had to take, all of it. It's all very interesting to me. So thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on the show. Now, let's check in. How are we doing, huh? How are you doing? How am I doing? Who knows? This weekend was kind of an L. This wasn't the best weekend in the world. I was stuck inside all day yesterday. Didn't get to go out. Didn't get to do anything. But then I'm on Instagram, and I see that there's this incredible show in Tompkins Square Park in Manhattan. Now, I'm usually in Tompkins Square Park on Saturday afternoons in Manhattan, but I was stuck at home. Who played? Murphy's Law, Burn, Wisdom and Chains, and some other bands. I don't have the full lineup in front of me, I'm sorry, but it looks like a great time. I guess this is an annual thing because on that date last year was the was the Madball show in Tompkins Square Park. So one thing I did get to do though was play like 10 hours of Warzone. I'm addicted to Rebirth solos, I played something like 80 games between Thursday night and Saturday night. I came in second place 10 times. Now, if you play Warzone, you know how painful second place can be, but I did come in first place, I think, two or three times. So there you go. I got it done. I was determined to keep playing until I came in first place at least once, and I did more than once. So there you go. And that's about all that's going on. You know, it's just work and podcast, podcast and work all the time. Everything is great here. I hope you're all doing well. 
you know, feel free to write to me, newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. Keep those reviews coming. Keep those shirt orders coming. Thank you all so much for your support. Everybody who writes to me, everybody who sends in a review, everybody who's ordered a shirt, everybody who reposts us, it all goes a long way. I really appreciate you. And we're back next week. New episode, new guest. We are here every week. That I can guarantee you. And so I look forward to speaking with you again. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Yeah!